Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. In John chapter 4, verse 35 and 38, there are three main people speaking. There are three main phrases, and they represent three main phases that will lead us to three very different places. John chapter 4, verse 35 starts off with the disciples, and Jesus says to them, do you not say? In other words, you have this saying. He's addressing them. And the phrase is, there are still four months, and then comes the harvest. The second person is Jesus. Jesus says, look, I tell you, his phrase is, lift up your eyes and see the fields, for they are already white unto harvest. The third, not really sure who these are. They could be philosophers. They could be poets. They could be prophets. But their saying holds true, Jesus says, and their phrase is, one sows and another reaps. These three Phrases lead to three different phases. Do you not say leads to the excuse phase. I tell you leads to the encouragement phase. And the saying holds true leads us to the empowerment phase. These three phases wrapped up in three phrases lead us to three very different places. places. The excuse phase leads us to a place of lack. The encouragement phase leads us to a place of labor. The empowerment phase leads us to a place of legacy. I want us to look at those three phases today and make a decision definitely not to be a part of the first one and to definitely engage in the last two because where we want to go is where the abundance of God resides. Is there anybody that wants to make sure that we don't end up in lack, but we end up in God's abundance? Phase one. Uh, The excuse phase, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? This leads us to a place of lack. There are still four months until comes the harvest has become uh, an an inevitable result of their inaction that says we end up with lack. And it is a result of what I would deem as a socially acceptable excuse for inaction. There's still four months and then comes the harvest. Why do we need to be busy today? If you believe that the harvest is still four months away, then it's only natural that you're not going to be harvesting the harvest that you don't believe is there. When I pastored in New Zealand, there were two men in uh, our church, Brett and Mark Codlin. They owned a farm in Pukekohe just outside of Auckland and they grew onions and they grew squash. Not my favorite vegetable. I would prefer that they grew watermelon and candy. That would be my preference. But they, they grew uh, onions and squash. And when it came to harvest time, those gentlemen just couldn't be in church. Their, their harvesters were turning over seven days a week. Their uh, employees were working around the clock. They were in trucks. In fact, we would have to take messages that we preached on a Sunday and put it on a recording and give it to them so they could play the recording in their truck and get fed the Word of God while they were doing the harvest. But before the harvest, when there were still four months until comes the harvest, Mark had nothing to do. 
And so Mark would travel with me. If I went somewhere, uh, I went to, uh, to England. We helped uh, pioneer a church in England and Mark traveled with me. He had friends in England. And so we went there for a week and he was with me as I was preaching and ministering. Uh, he went with me on my first trip to America. In fact, Mark was with me on my first trip to Disneyland. I have to tell you, major disappointment. Since a child, I've been dreaming of going to Disneyland. Since a little boy watching the Walt Disney shows on television, I dreamed about Disneyland. And my first trip to Disneyland was with a 40-something-year-old man who is a worse tourist than me. And so it wasn't a great... But this was Mark. He was able to travel with me. Why? Because the harvest wasn't there. When you don't see the harvest, you won't take action to engage the harvest. Jesus is engaging the harvest. He is talking to a very broken, hurting, wounded lady who had, from all accounts, a lifetime of rejection. We know she'd been rejected relationally. We find out that she had five husbands and the guy that she's with right now is not her husband. So she's walked through seasons and moments of brokenness. We would surmise that she's been rejected by her peers, the other women in town. We would surmise that because she's at the well in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. They didn't go and get water in the heat of the day. The ladies would go together early in the morning or early in the evening. They would travel together as a crowd. It was a social event, but she wasn't there with the crowd. She had been rejected by her peers. She was a Samaritan and rejected by the Jews. She was a woman and rejected because of her gender. And we know that she was rejected by the disciples because as soon as they saw Jesus talking with her, they verbalized... Why is Jesus talking with her? Why is he spending any time with her? But Jesus doesn't reject her because his eyes are open for the harvest. His eyes are open for opportunity. His eyes are open for ministry. His eyes are open for any moment that he can step in and bring healing, any moment that he can step in and bring hope, any moment that he can step in and bring happiness because Jesus' eyes are open for the harvest. But the disciples miss it. They, 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 they ask him, does he want something to eat? And he pretty much says, no, what I've just been doing is satisfying my food. The thing that satisfies me is to do the will of the father. They're like, did somebody bring him a burger? Just, just totally missed the moment. And then Jesus said, you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. That's why you don't see it because you have accepted this socially acceptable excuse for inaction. In 1987, a book was written called uh, uh, Fatal Errors That Managers Make and How You Can Avoid Them. And the author, Stephen Brown, coined the phrase, the failure formula. And it goes like this. People fail in direct proportion to their willingness to accept socially accepted excuses for failure. It's been my experience that churches are no different that churches will fail in direct proportion to their willingness to accept socially acceptable excuses for inaction, socially acceptable excuses for stagnation, or socially acceptable excuses for failure. 
Here are some of the excuses I've heard over the years. You may have heard some of them. Church growth is not important. Holiness is all that matters. It doesn't matter whether our churches grow. It's just a matter of we can stay small as long as churches are holy. Holiness is not an optional extra. And we are not holy because we're great. We are holy because he is holy. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, but because of the blood of Jesus, because we've been washed in his blood, we are white as snow. And if you love him, you want to live for him. But that attitude of, well, we don't need our church to grow, we just need people to be holy, says that the church would prefer to be a keeper of the aquarium rather than the decision to be fishers of men. Another excuse I've heard is God is sending revival. I don't know about you, but revival's been coming every year since I've been saved, 40-something years. It's off the beach. It's all, I remember the prophecies in the early days. The wave is coming. The wave is just off the, off the bank. The wave is about, the wave is coming of revival. That wave was frozen solid. It's been stuck out on the side of the beach for 40 years and it's never hit. Here's my take on revival. I believe revival is a lazy person's mentality for soul winning. Because if God has to bring revival, then you and I don't have to do anything because we're waiting for him to do everything. And if he does everything that we ask him to do, then it switches around the basis. He is no longer God, we're God telling God what to do. When God told us, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, when God sent the Holy Spirit to fill us with power so we could be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, God said, I gave you my word, I filled you with my spirit, I gave you the commission, get off your backside, stop telling me to do it, and you go out and bring in the harvest. The church just needs more prayer. If we pray more, we'd have more people saved. I believe in the power of prayer. But how much prayer do we need? Can we quantify that? Is it five hours a week, 10 hours a week? Are we not, are we not seeing God move because we're only paying 40 hours a week and we should pray 41? I believe we should pray. But I should believe that we should pray and harvest at the same time. Our demons are bigger in this city. You can never build a great church here. This is a tough region. Our demons are bigger than the demons in the south. Those demons in the south are small. They don't even work out. Our demons are on roids. They're at the gym five days a week. They're huge demons. It's just an excuse for an action. We've never done it this way before. Then why do we need to change? This was good for us 35 years ago. Why isn't it good for us now? This music was great 50 years ago. Why is it not great now? Because life changes and life moves on. Statistics tell us, George Barnett research tells us that only 5% of people make a decision for the Lord over the age of 30. The harvest is always young. The harvest happens in children, 
It happens in junior high. It happens in high school. It happens in the early years of college. The harvest is always young. And so we need to consistently pitch the church to be attractional for the young. We need to consistently invest in the youth. We need to consistently invest in children. If we're going to harvest the harvest, then we need to reach out where the harvest is and the harvest is always young. When we pitch it at older people, and there's nothing wrong with having a church that ministered to everybody, but when we solely pitch it to older people, then our fishing strategy is something like somebody going to Bass Pro Shop, buying the most expensive rod and reel, spending serious dollars on bait and tackle, then going and launching their fishing line into the great depths of their bathtub and hope that the fish will swim up the plug hole and attach its descaled, deboned, and filleted self on the hook. We're going fishing where the fish aren't biting. The fish are biting and the fish are always biting when it's young. And as a church, we're going to consistently bring ourselves to the harvest and the harvest is always young. Another excuse, we tried that and it didn't work. One of my favorite ones is this. We are not into uh, quantity, we are into quality. I had a guy down the road from us, he had a, a, a small church and this is in New Zealand. And he would bust this out on me every, every now and then. He would say, well, you know, your church is big, but, but we, are, we are not into quantity, we're into quality. You got the quantity. Your people aren't that good. We got the quality. Our people are awesome. And he was shocked when I said to him, man, that is probably the most arrogant thing I think anybody has ever said. Because it sounds spiritual, but that is just arrogance to the max. You've got a big crowd, but our people are much better. How do you even quantify that? How do you quantify somebody's a better Christian than somebody else if you don't even know who they are? Well, you can't have quality because you've got quantity. No, you can have both. I believe we can have quality and we can have quantity. I believe that we can grow and that we can grow people and that we can be loving on God and we can have, I don't believe it's an optional extra. Phrase two, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields for they are white for harvest. This is the encouragement phase. It leads us to a place of labor. The challenge of, of vision is the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And the reason that the laborers are few is if they've adopted this, there's still four months until the harvest. And so Jesus says, no, I've sent you to labor in the harvest. So first of all, you have to look. The church has to look. We have to open up our eyes. We're, our eyes are going to be closed if we're sleeping. Our eyes are going to be closed if we are too introspective. Our eyes are going to be closed if we're too fearful of the big bad world around us. And we just close our eyes and hope it will go away. The church can look clearly at things. Its eyes are going to be closed if it's always judging everybody else. Jesus said, why are you looking at the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a whopping big log growing out the side of your face? I don't know if you've had anything in your eye. Something goes in your eye. What's the natural response of the eye? It is to judgment will always cause us to close our eyes and not look at the fields. Look, lift up your eyes. You won't see it. 
if you don't see it. You won't see it if you're not positioned up looking to see things. I've totally missed things at home because I've walked in, walked past things as I was looking down. Jesus said, no, I want you to look. I want you to lift up your eyes. I want there to be an expectation of faith. We need our flesh guy to get a faith eye and start seeing the great potential that God has for us today in 2023. He says, look, lift and see. You have to actively see. Now, a memory is not a vision. Last, year, we, last week, we celebrated a memory. And we've got a great memory. Some of us have got great memories of what God's done here. And they're worth celebrating. We wouldn't be here today without the foundation of the memories. But the church of the future requires us to have a vision. Our vision will become their memory. When we have a vision and it becomes a reality, our vision would become their memory. That's how it works. So you and I have to have a vision. Without a vision, people cast off restraint. The opposite is true. Once you have a vision, you put on a restraint. You say there's certain things that we could do, we're not going to do because we have a vision. And so we have a vision to see God impact the future generations. We have a, a, a vision to build a harvest that goes way beyond that we've ever been. We have a, a vision to build on the legacy that God gave us and take the church in strength into the future. Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. I'm glad he didn't just say a field. He said fields, plural, not singular. Not just one field, but fields. There is ample opportunity. There's opportunity in our workplace. There's opportunity in our schools. There's opportunity in our community groups. There's opportunity at the gym. There's opportunity at sport. There's opportunity in families. There's opportunity with your neighbours and your friends. The harvests are white under harvest. There are fields, there are opportunity, and they are ready to be harvested right now. What do you see when you see? Do you see fields? Do you see them white? Do you see harvest? Every one of us, when we see what God has called us to see, we'll start to be all that God has called us to be. Our church has a vision. A word of life is a church home. When you hear Jackie in the lobby yelling out very loudly, that's not just a statement. We want that to be an experience. We want you to feel home when you, when you get here. If you're in church for the very first time, welcome home. We're so glad that you are here. Word of Life is a church home where people can encounter Jesus. He is the reason we're here. We're here for no other reason. We're not here to entertain ourselves. We're not here because of ourselves. We're here because of one person. His name is Jesus. He's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords and he's coming again and we need to experience him on a daily basis. We want to live planted in Christian community. We want to fulfill our purpose and we want to live out God's mission. That is the vision of Word of Life. That leads us to phrase three. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. This is the empowerment phase. This phrase here leads us to legacy. This phrase here compels us that we need to think more than just about the moment. We need to think beyond lunch. We need to think beyond our own comfort zone. We need to think beyond what God has done in the past. And we need by faith to believe God for what he can do in the future. A wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. A wise church leaves an inheritance for their children's children. It's all about legacy. 
Now, the one sows and another reaps is in the Bible not always used as a positive statement. In fact, scripturally, there are quite a few moments where the connotation of one sowing and another reaping has a negative connotation. When the servant came back with the one talent and had to give an account to the master, which is a picture of you and I standing before God in heaven, giving an account with what we did with our life. When that man gave an account and he had done nothing except play it safe and bury the talent in the ground, he said, he said this, uh, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So this man who buried his talent, played it safe, used this phrase as a critique against his master. It was used as a judgment of sin. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 9 to 10 says, lest you give your honour to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labours go to the house of a foreigner. The whole one sows and somebody else reaps was a sign of judgment of sin. Also in Micah chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, you see the exact same thing. But in this context, it's not negative. When Jesus said this, it's intended to be an encouragement for us to enter into the bigness of God, the way that God sees things. For here, the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Jesus phrases this as something that's to be celebrated. Before I was in ministry, I was a chef. And I remember in my my uh, teenage years when I was in my apprenticeship, the very, very first buffet, smorgasbord that we'd ever created. And it was Christmas and it was a big deal. And we spent all week preparing for the buffet, uh, decorating legs of ham, decorating chickens, making pâtés, making huge platters. I'll, I'll never forget on the, the night that we were opening the buffet, we'd spent, we built towers, these huge towers with seafood dangling down. We, we built fruit platters. We laid all the food out that we spent days in preparation. There was ham, there was roast beef. Anybody have hungry? I'm preaching myself hungry right now. And, and so, and, and, and you went right down, down the line and then there was fresh fruit and there was desserts and all sorts of things laid out. And then they would open the door and then the customers would come in and like a swarm of locusts, they were just like, and they would devour that whole buffet in seconds. And I can remember thinking to myself, that's horrible. I put all that work and all that effort to building that buffet and you just ate it all. If I was a Christian back then, I would have stood at the door rebuking the devourer. But the reason we prepared the buffet was not so people could sit back and watch it for the next six weeks. The reason we prepared it was to feed the crowd. That's the whole reason for harvest. And so when somebody labours, they labour for a harvest because they're anticipating that somebody else is going to reap 
the harvest. That's why we plant it. It's a biblical principle that if you if you keep it, you will lose it. But if you give it away, you'll get more. I, I, I love the way Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 25 is written because it's written like, almost like a, this doesn't seem to make sense. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds more than he should and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will be watered himself. The way that's written is like this doesn't make, we would think if we kept it, we'd get it, but we've got to release it to get more. First Corinthians chapter three says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Psalm 127 verse one says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, those who build it labor in vain. Now, people have used that passage to say, well, then we don't have to do anything. God's going to give the growth. It's all over to God. And you miss the first chunk of what God was saying. He said, one sows and another waters, and God gives the increase on the what? The sowing and the watering. If we had two garden beds here, and on this garden bed, we didn't put any seeds, planted nothing. And, and, and I said, I believing for a harvest there, you would say, I don't think that's going to happen. And, and we're like, why? Because you didn't plant anything. But I'm going to believe that God's going to give the increase. I'm just going to stay here and pray. No, God says, I want you to do your bit. This is the way the kingdom of God works. God says, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. You'll get the benefit as long as I get the glory. That's consistent all the way through scripture. God won't do what we, I'm not saying he'll never do what we can do, but very rarely he'll do what we can do. There's no growth unless the seed is planted. There's no growth unless the seed is cultivated. And there is no worthwhile growth unless God gives the increase. So John says, the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive the wages according to his labor. Here's the amazing thing about God. God says, you build my house, I'll build your house. You build my kingdom, I'll build your house. I'll, I'll work in your life, but seek first my kingdom. Make my kingdom a priority. Sow seed, plant seed, harvest what's in front of you. And he says, and then when you die and you stand before me, he who sows and he who reaps will get to rejoice together. And the one who gave the growth will be able to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. D.A. Carson in the Pillar New Testament Bible commentary said, the sower labors in anticipation of what is to come. The reaper must never forget that the harvest he enjoys is the fruit of another person's toil. While the earth remains, the Bible says in Genesis, there is seed, there is time, and there is harvest. Those things remain until Jesus comes back. And while the earth remains, those, those principles, seed, time, and harvest. And we are harvesting on the legacy of seed sown before us. And now you and I 
are sowing seeds for the generations that come after us. That's a thing way of God. And God, God spoke about it in Genesis. He talked about fruit-bearing seed. The perpetual growth comes in this principle of God. You sow a seed, you get fruit, and in the fruit is the seed. And then out of that seed, you plant the seed and you get fruit, and in that fruit is the seed. Somebody said, you can always count how many seeds are in an orange, but it's hard to count how many oranges are in a seed because the seed has life, but the seed needs to be sown. The challenge with the seed is seeds aren't that sexy. They're they're not that attractive. Here is a beautiful packet of morning glory. This is what it will look like one day at some point. But inside here are these seeds. And not only are they small, but... They're not that fantastic. They're really, no, one, no one's excited. Like if I come down here and, and I'm like, you know, I just want to really bless you. Um, see you faithful in church and, you know, you love God and you serve him, you're committed to the kingdom of God and we just want to, want to bless you with some morning glory and so some, some plants. And so here is here's a couple of seeds. Don't lose them, but... You should feel blessed. Um, it's like giving you a bouquet of flowers in the future. But there's nothing impressive about that. She's probably going to throw them away, give them to her husband. He's going to put it in his pocket. He's going to forget about it. They're going to wash them. There's going to be plants growing out of the side of his leg in a couple of weeks' time. But seeds are required. And I, I want to consistently and, 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 and take time to thank you today for sowing the seeds of prayer. When we pray, things happen. I, I want to thank you for sowing the seed of prayer when no one else turned up to pray. I want to thank you for sowing the seeds to serve when no one else turned up to serve. I want to thank you for sowing the seeds of investing your finances when no one else was investing their finances, for inviting other people to come and bringing them to church when no one else was interested. Seeds, they're the little things, but those seeds will end up becoming a harvest of flowers that are here. Now, I asked them to get roses because I thought roses grew from seeds, but I believe that roses grow from cuttings, which just goes to prove I'm not a gardener, which is probably a good thing. But this is the result. This is the result. Do you want to give these to your mum? So... Just say, here, Mom, I love you. Have, have to give her like a pre happy Mother's Day. So I bought you this great big beautiful bouquet of flowers because I'm a good young man. But that's the result of the seed. And so at some point, the seeds that we're sowing are going to grow to where other people are, that they're flowing in the blessing that you and I have created. So at Word of Life, we have a strategy of sowing seeds. We see the church as a house. We have the front door of the house. We want to make Word of Life a welcoming environment 
on May 7, we're going to do our Heart for the House offering where we raise money to invest back into this building. Uh, I, I'm grateful and thankful for everybody that sowed heavily and invested uh, passionately into making this whole ground floor happen. And we appreciate and we love every one of you and thank you for your legacy and thank you for what you've done. It's a blessing of God for doing that. On May 7, we are we are going to move towards our Heart for the House offering where we reinvest. We're going to refabric all the pews that are up there. We're going to re-carpet and repaint. Uh, we want to invest in our children's facility. We need to put money in our children's ministry. That needs revamping. Our parking lot needs help. Our signage out the front needs help. There are a lot of things in our church. Our restrooms, our restrooms seriously need some serious help. And so we want to we want to create an environment where people come through the front door where they discover that we value them and we're preparing a place for them. The living room is our Sunday service. And as you would have noticed, we have a 9.30 and an 11.30 service in English. At 9.30, we also have an Amharic language service in the chapel. At 11.30, there's a Spanish-speaking service in the chapel that happened simultaneously. Pastor Fahad ministers to the Persian community. We have a vision that this year we'll launch a service in Persia, a Persian service, believing God that's going to add to that community. We're adding a variety of translations in our English service. We have a passion to see people come to Christ. The dining room is where we do fellowship. We have a, a goal to have a hundred life groups by the end of the year. And I believe that our church can get big, but the bigger it gets, the smaller it needs to get. And so just because it's a large church doesn't mean that anybody needs to feel insignificant. And the only way we can do that is be strategic. So our life groups are small groups of people that gather together on a weekly basis in semesters and they gather around teaching or they gather around a common interest. I run a life group. I have about nine men in my life group. We meet every Wednesday night and, uh, and I encourage all of our leadership team to be able to run a life group. Our life groups are the front line of all pastoral care. So if something goes down in your life, a life group leader and the people in your life group should be the first responders to your need, whether it be visiting you in hospital or finding out if you need a, a meal or finding out if you need a ride or helping you. And they are our first responders. We, we need to be able to care for everybody. I, 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 I want our church to grow huge and to fill this building multiple times over a weekend, but I never want anybody to feel like they're just a number. I never want any Anybody to feel like they don't matter. And the only way that that can happen is when we mobilize as a community of God's people and we can have small groups that minister right at the heart of the individual, right where they are at. The kitchen helps us fulfill our purpose. We want to get people plugged into their God-given destiny. We're going to start an on-site campus of Ascent Bible College. It'll either start in the fall or the spring, uh, fall of this year or the spring of next year. But we have a desire to have an on-site campus Bible college where we're training and equipping leaders and launching them into ministry and launching them into their call. And we want to encourage our church to take Sunday as a day where you sit one service and you serve another. 
So you just sit one service, you worship, you enjoy the word, you enjoy the ministry, you get prayed for, but the next service you show up and you serve people around you, sit one, serve one. The bedroom is the family of God, and we see our church growing through uh, prayer. We're kicking up our prayer meetings. The first week or the first Monday week of every month, so tomorrow will be the first Monday of February, uh, Monday to Friday, we're running prayer meetings, 6 a.m. and 7 p.m. every night, Monday to Friday, and then the Sunday at 5 p.m. In April, we're going to do a week of prayer and fasting. We have ministry nights coming up this year, a women's conference, a men's breakfast, seniors camp, kids ministry, all sorts of things are going to be happening as our church moves forward. On March 26, we are uh, voting for new uh, deacons. Our present deacons have served faithfully for a long period of time. We'll share more about this in some small meetings that we're going to have over the next uh, couple of months. Uh, but we need to vote in more new deacons, and then we need to vote in updated bylaws. We gave our bylaws to our church attorney who took one look at them and said, these need to be updated. We've made them simple. We've made them strategic and we've made them safe to protect the assets uh, for the kingdom of God. Those bylaws have been given to our pastors. They've been given to our present deacon board. They've been given to our trustees. We gave them to Dr. Roden and we've given them to Pastor Frank Potter to look through and give us feedback. And now that they've been put together, we are distributing to our membership to have a look at, and we're going to give you some dates that if you have questions, you can come and ask about those questions. But we're going to ask about those bylaws and get some more input, Uh, but that's going to happen on March 26th. And so you can mark that in your calendar to to join us. Uh, Word of Life Christian Academy. How many people love our school? I'm glad that we've got a, a school here at our church. Uh, They're launching daycare. They're launching art programs, new sports programs. God is doing great things in our school. We just bought a new bus, a 15-seater bus, so our children can go out and do uh, uh, field trips. This year, we're launching life care as an opportunity for us to minister into our community. We had a health expo last year. This year, we're having another health expo, and we're having a job and finance expo as well, so we can just continue to bless our community. We launched this year, uh, sorry, last year, our Business Leaders Network, and that's going to continue to grow in 2023. And then missions. We're we're going back to El Salvador. We're taking two trips to El Salvador. We're going back to Peru this year. Anna and I are going to Ghana shortly, and we're going to work towards how can we do ministry in Ghana in the future. Uh, We have a youth conference coming up in July and a kids conference happening in the summer. A lot of great things that are happening. So many things that we can't even get it out in such a short time. But 75 years from now, most of us would have stood before God and given an account for what we did with a previous generation's investment. Most of us, unless they cure disease and give away free Botox, will have gone to be with the Lord 75 years from now and we would have stood and given an account. What did we do with the legacy that all the men and women of God that have gone before us have gifted us in this generation. 75 years from now, most of us would have stood before God and given an account for what we have invested into the future generations. 
What do, we, what do we invest for those that are coming after us? 75 years from now, most of us would have rejoiced in heaven with the generations that have gone before us. So this scripture proves true. John 4.36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. As my Nana Keys used to say, he will not ask thy creed nor will he ask thy birth, but one thing he will ask of thee, what hast thou done on earth? 